Babylonian cuneiform said that they had 20 years of food apart from what they could grow on the inside. And so they thought no one could ever conquer us. And in many ways, Belshazzar is like modern Americans. He believed he was absolutely secure. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We've been in a study of the book of Daniel, a book some have called the Revelation of the Old Testament because of the amount of prophecy it contains. Today, as we open chapter 5, we find the consequences incurred by one king who chose to take the holy things consecrated to God and make a mockery of them. Let's join Pastor Brogy now as he brings us up to speed. Take your Bibles this morning, turn to the prophet Daniel chapter 5. Last week we studied Daniel 4, uh, the marvelous conversion of Nebuchadnezzar who turned from his sin to the living God. And he was wondrously converted and someday we're going to meet him in heaven. But when we come to Daniel 5, we really come to a study in contrast. It's the historical account of a king who walked away from God, who walked away from what he knew to be true, and this morning he's in hell. Belshazzar had a disastrous party where he saw the handwriting on the wall. And I believe that the historical record found here in the fifth chapter is a message that needs to be heeded by modern America. You cannot miss the connection between what took place in Babylon centuries ago and what is happening today in our great country. We are known for our luxury, for our lust, for our licentiousness. And as you read this chapter of Scripture, God judged Babylon, and we know a day is coming when God will judge all the nations of the world, and so we would do well to heed the message. Now, this is a narrative portion of Scripture, and really to appreciate it, you need to deal with it as a whole, so we're going to do the whole chapter. So fasten your pew belts, get ready. I'm going to begin by reading at least the first 12 verses so you have a flavor of where we're headed, all right? Belshazzar the king held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles, and he was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. When Belshazzar tasted the wine, he gave orders to bring the gold and silver vessels which Nebuchadnezzar his father had taken out of the temple, which was in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God which was in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, drank from them. They drank the wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Suddenly, the finger of a man's hand, the fingers of a man's hand emerged and began writing opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. The king saw the back of the hand that did the writing. Then the king's face grew pale. His thoughts alarmed him, and his hip joints went slack, and his knees began knocking together. The king called aloud to bring in the conjurers, the Chaldeans, the diviners. The king spoke and said to the wise men of Babylon, any man who can read this inscription and explain its interpretation to me shall be clothed with purple and have a necklace of gold around his neck and have authority as third ruler in the kingdom." Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the inscription or make known its interpretation to the king. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed. His face grew even paler, and his nobles were perplexed. 
The queen entered the banquet hall because of the words of the king and his nobles. The queen spoke and said, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts alarm you or your face be pale. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And in the days of your father, illumination, insight, and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, appointed him chief of the magicians, conjurers, Chaldeans, and diviners. This was because an extraordinary spirit, knowledge and insight, interpretation of dreams, explanation of enigmas, and solving of difficult problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belshazzar. Let Daniel now be summoned, and he will declare the interpretation. Now, before we dig into the finer details of the passage, let me just set its context. If you've been with us and you know the book of Daniel divides into two halves, chapters 1 through 6 are historical. The focus concerns Daniel and his friends. Chapters 7 through 12 are largely prophecy. It's prophetical. And it deals with Daniel and his people's future. Here in the first half, you can see we open the book as we saw Daniel and his friends deported from Jerusalem to Babylon when they were just young teenagers. We came into the second chapter, the one little bit of prophecy in this section, where we saw Nebuchadnezzar's dream. 1 through 6 is largely historical with a little bit of prophecy. 7 through 12 is all prophecy with just a little bit of history in it. So we saw this dream that was an outline of the nations, the Gentile nations and God's plans for them. Then we saw in the third chapter, the king not satisfied with his future. He built that great statue. All who were wise were supposed to bow down and worship it, but there were three who were truly wise, and they refused, and we saw the furnace of fire. Then in chapter 4, if you were here last time, we saw Nebuchadnezzar's pride. We saw how God dealt with him in his pride and how God gloriously converted him. And then next week, we will come to the lion's den. Now, please understand, between chapters 4 and 5, there's a period of time, 23 years to be precise. You can study the chronology of the book. That's clear, and not just does the book reveal it, but secular history reveals it as well. And so there's a large block of time between these two chapters. Remember, in the opening chapter, we met Daniel when he was just a teenager. And when we come next week to the sixth chapter, we will see him really as an elderly man. He's between 85 and maybe 90 years of age. Here's a slide of the kings that will be helpful for you to see. If you remember Nebuchadnezzar, when he initially came to attack Jerusalem, came as General Nebuchadnezzar. His father, uh, Nabopolassar, was the king. And while he was sieging Jerusalem, he discovered his daddy died. So he took some hostages, made an arrangement, went back to Babylon. He's going to come back and attack it fully. But he becomes the king. King Nebuchadnezzar rules for quite a period of time, 43 years to be precise. At the end of his rule, you find this man, Evil Merodach. That's his son. He's not mentioned in the book of Daniel, but he is mentioned in two books in the Bible, in 2 Kings, along with the prophet Jeremiah. Unlike his father, who ruled 43 years, he rules only two years. He's assassinated by his brother. It's misspelled here, but it should be Nergal Lorazer. And Nergal Lorazer is mentioned in Jeremiah chapter 39. Um, but then uh, there's some other short reigns, uh, reigns, and then we eventually come to Nebuchadnezzar's son-in-law, whose name is Nebuch 
Nabonidus, but he's also his grandson, as we will see. Nabonidus was his son-in-law, and his, Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, Belshazzar, will take his place. Now, Nabonidus is an interesting man. We know a lot about Nabonidus from a number of sources, not only Babylonian cuneiform, but there was a very famous historian of the day named Bronsias, a Greek historian, whom Josephus repeatedly quotes as a source. We discover that Nabonidus didn't really like staying at home. He was a warrior king of sorts, and so he would be out fighting the enemies of Babylon. And at this time, the Medes and the Persians were a growing force. But he also was very interested in a number of building projects. And so he was not one to stay home, and so he appointed his son as a co-regent. And his son's name, of course, is mentioned here in the text. It's Belshazzar. Now, what's kind of interesting is that Belshazzar is not mentioned outside of the book of Daniel, where all these other kings are. And so the skeptics who want to attack Daniel, and if you remember, the book of Daniel is the second most attacked book in the Bible, followed after Genesis. So I told you, if you can believe Genesis 1-1, you can believe anything in the Bible. But men want to make Genesis 1-1 ridiculous. They want to make it absurd that you're an ignoramus. I heard one of the uh, uh, commentators on one of the major news agencies commenting on one of the men running for president. And because he believed in creation, he said he didn't stand a chance. How could you be an intelligent person and believe in a God who created? See, that's why Genesis 1-1 is repeatedly attacked. So nonetheless, Belshazzar's name is not found or was not found. And so this was another excuse to attack the book of Daniel. And there was a German theologian in the early 1850s by the name of Ferdinand Herzig who said, well, here's another proof that Daniel was not written by Daniel. It's another proof that this book was written around 165 B.C. instead of in the 6th century B.C. And one of the reasons they don't like Daniel is because of its prophetic nature. It is incredibly precise. We are going to read, when we come to the ninth chapter, one of the most profound, precise, particular prophecies in all of the Bible. It will absolutely blow your mind. But look, you can read all the background information and all the commentaries and authorship, but it's very, very simple. Jesus referred to Daniel not as Daniel the historian, but in Matthew 24, 15 as Daniel the prophet, and that settles it for me. In either case, in 1854, a British archaeologist by the name of J.G. Uh, Taylor, he uncovered this, what's called a steel. On it are 60 lines of Babylonian writing. And of course, mentioned in there is this son and co-regent by the name of Belshazzar. Now, by the time chapter 5 opens, his daddy is dead. And so he is properly called here in the opening verse, the king. Now, that's the background. With that said, let's dig into the finer points of the text. If you read the chapter several times, and I always do, before I begin to expound it carefully, I discovered that it really unfolds like a three-act play. And so I've given you an outline in three points. The first concerns the king's decadence. The king's decadence. And we find here in the opening verse his foolishness, the foolishness that he displays. Notice, if you will now, verse 1. Belshazzar, the king, held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles, and he was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. 
This was a night of decadence. It was a night of debauchery. It was a, a night of dissipation. And he has with him a thousand of his nobles, along the Bible says with his wives and his concubines. Now, archaeologists have uncovered a number of banquet halls in ancient Babylon, one that would seat 10,000. And archaeologists have confirmed that this very banquet hall that Belshazzar met in that night that would seat approximately 2,000, that they have actually uncovered it. In fact, Saddam Hussein restored this particular banquet hall. So what I'm trying to say, it was not uncommon for them to throw these big bashes. And what we find here is a king who's not worried, who seemingly has no fear. He believes his city is impregnable. He had spent, along with prior kings, huge sums of money to defend the city. Here's a picture of the inner walls. I told you last time the outer wall was 17 miles long. It was 387 feet high. It was 87 feet thick. It was wide enough to run four chariots side by side, and they would literally have chariot races around the outer wall. Uh, it also had 100 towers built around it for defensive purposes. Then there was the inner wall that is pictured here that was 250 feet tall. And as you can see, and this becomes important to understanding how this city was sieged, the Euphrates River came right through that particular wall. Now, in addition to the fact that they had plenty of water in case the city was sieged, and this is important, and if you've ever been to some of the ancient biblical sites, you realize when a siege takes place, two things are critical. One is food. The second is water. Had plenty of water. Babylonian cuneiform said that they had 20 years of food apart from what they could grow on the inside. And so they thought no one could ever conquer us. And in many ways... Belshazzar is like modern Americans. He believed he was absolutely secure. Verse 2 begins, when Belshazzar tasted the wine. Now this word tasted in the original Aramaic or in my Hebrew Bible, it carries more than the idea of a transfer of flavor. If you read commentaries and you have heard this text preached before, you will repeatedly hear pastors talk about the big drunken party that took place here. Yet there's no mention anywhere of anyone being drunk in the entire chapter. So how did they come with that? Because the Hebrew word, like the Aramaic word for taste, literally speaks not just of a transfer of flavor, but the tasting of its effects. And so in many of your newer translations, if you have the Net Bible this morning, it says, while under the influence of the wine, and that's the thought behind the Hebrew and the Aramaic. In modern vernacular, this man was high. And God gives us this detail in verse 2 because he wants us to understand the relationship between the tasting, uh, drinking to get high, along with the command that follows. Look further into verse 2. When Belshazzar tasted the wine, he gave orders to bring the gold and silver vessels which Nebuchadnezzar his father had taken out of the temple which was in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. This king is emboldened as he's drunk. He's high on alcohol. So he orders these utensils that Nebuchadnezzar 65 years earlier had brought from Jerusalem and set in his temple and he wants to drink from them. Now, hold your finger here for just a moment. You're in Daniel. Go to the book of Proverbs, if you will, chapter 20. If you're new to the Bible, find the Psalms. That's about dead center. And right after Psalms, there's the book of Proverbs. There's 31 chapters in Proverbs, 
one for every day of the month. Turn to the 20th chapter of Proverbs for just a moment, because I want you to see that what Belshazzar was doing was very foolish because he was using intoxicating alcohol. He was using strong drink, and it has a way of blurring someone's judgment. Proverbs 20, the opening verse says, wine is a mocker, strong drink a brawler, and whoever is intoxicated by it is not wise. Belshazzar was anything but wise. Daniel 5 is really an illustration of Proverbs chapter 20 in verse 1, because strong drink has a way of blurring your sense of judgment. Wine is a mocker, strong drink a brawler, and whoever is intoxicated by it is not wise. Now drop down to verse 29 of uh, chapter 23 for just a moment, chapter 23. And listen to what the writer says. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who linger long over wine, those who go to taste mixed wine. Some of you were brought up in a home where your dad or your mom were drunks. And you grew up in a home where there was a lot of sorrow. You saw maybe your dad beat your mother. Maybe your father did things to you that he would never otherwise ever do had he not been drunk on wine. That's what alcohol does. It destroys lives. In fact, the King James translates Proverbs 20 and verse 1 a little bit different. It says, whoever is deceived, not whoever is intoxicated, but whoever is deceived by strong drink is not wise. And actually, there's a dual nuance to the Hebrew word. It speaks of deception that comes through intoxication. So if you're doing a word-for-word -word correspondence, you have to choose one. The NAS went with intoxicated. The King James went with deceived. But they're both good because wine is the great deceiver. Strong drink deceives people. And the alcohol industry is trying to deceive you that there's nothing wrong with their products, that alcohol is a great thing. Now look at verse 31 of this chapter. Do not look on the wine when it is red. When it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly, he's talking about fermented wine. When it sparkles, at the last, it bites like a serpent and stings like a viper. Alcohol promises everything just like the devil, the serpent in Eden promised Adam and Eve so much. But in the end, it's like a poisonous snake. Verse 33, your eyes will see strange things and your mind will utter perverse things. People who get high will say strange things they would never say had they not been drunk. Verse 34, and you will be like one who lies down in the middle of the sea or like one who lies down on the top of a mass. It's a description, one, of someone who's seasick. So the drunk driver is dizzy. He's over the line back and forth. He is also stupid. He is like one on the top of a mass. Someone who is drunk will do dumb things. We just saw last week of that drunk man on that cruise ship holding on to the edge of the ship until he dropped off the edge, and now he's dead. And so that's what drunks do. They struck me, verse 35, but I did not become ill. They beat me, but I did not know it. When shall I awake? I shall seek another drink. I will seek another drink. That's what the drunkard does. He wakes up. He doesn't know how he got the bruises he got. <laughs> On our honeymoon night, I put my hand, or my, our second night, not our honeymoon night, I put my hand through a window. I was trying to uh, 
open a window on this house we had rented and the sill was rotted and my finger got caught. It was just a small cut, but it was enough where I needed some stitches. And we went, we drove, my wife, their wife drove me 28 miles to the emergency room. And there were so many drunks in there that night. Guys all beat up, black and blue, bleeding, arrogant, screaming at the nurses and doctors trying to help them. The strange thing is they wake up the next morning and they say, give me another drink. That's the horror of alcohol. First a man takes a drink, then the drink takes a drink, and then the drink ultimately takes the man. It has a way of distorting life. This king was so stupid. He was so unwise. He was unlike King Lemuel's mother who gave him sound advice in Proverbs 31. There she said, it is not for kings, O Lemuel. It is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to desire strong drink lest they drink and forget what is decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. And understand, strong drink does not refer to the distilled alcohols that come centuries after the Bible is completed. Some say they come in the 7th century. Most argue they come in the 16th century. One expert said, and I quote, the 16th century created it, the 17th century consolidated it, the 18th century popularized it. So when we're talking about strong drink in the Bible, we're not speaking of rum and whiskey and vodka and the things that came years later, centuries later. We're talking about naturally fermented beer and wine. And God said, don't use it. Why? Because it is addictive. The exception that God gives in Proverbs 31 is to the bitter, dying, despairing man. You can give it to him as a painkiller, much like you'd give morphine to a dying person as an act of mercy. Now, many times people have said to me, well, pastor, will drinking a beer send you to hell? Of course not. You can drink a beer. In fact, you can drink no alcohol your, all, your whole life and die and go straight to hell. But God teaches that if you drink wine, if you drink beer, you're unwise. You're stupid. Understand, this is not an issue of salvation. This is an issue of obedience. This is not an issue of whether or not you go to heaven. Justification, it's an issue of sanctification. It's an issue of spiritual growth. And it's really an issue of your own personal testimony. It's an issue of whether you're going to cause another brother to stumble. It's an issue of whether you're going to glorify God in the day that we live in. It's an issue of how wise you are. And really, it's an issue of how satisfied you are whether or not the living water of Jesus Christ is so able to so deeply satisfy your soul that you don't need a drink. You'd say, Pastor, I don't get drunk. I just like a drink. Well, I'm glad you don't get drunk because drunkenness is evil. But when are you drunk? When you're buzzed? You know, human law, it's all over the billboards lately. Buzz driving is drunk driving. I don't want to see how close I can get to sin without sinning. Our goal as believers ought to be how far we can get away from sin. And our standards certainly ought to be higher than, than the world's standards. Now, that may sound old-fashioned to you. And you may think I'm just some ignorant evangelical. And you're welcome to think that. Though I went through a four-year master's program and a three-year doctoral program, I've done my work. I read the Bible in the original languages. I was just speaking to a Hebrew rabbi who's coming here in just a few weeks on a Wednesday night. You don't want to miss him. December the 2nd. 
And he reminded me that they always mix the wine with water. And that Orthodox Jews to this day continually do that. Listen, I want to tell you from experience, because I know the Reformed faith is on top, and I'm thankful for many of my Reformed brothers. But most of them are teaching that it's okay to drink. It's okay to have a glass of wine. It's okay to have a beer. And they are doing a great disservice to young evangelical Christians. And honestly, I have never met a Reformed pastor or any pastor of any stripe who has any power on their life who drink. None. And I don't know pastors that God is using in a mighty way. Look, our Reformed brothers are not leading the charge in terms of bringing people into the kingdom. Less than 5% of all the missionaries in the world today come from the Reformed faith. We would do wise. Dad, you would be wise to be a model to, your, to the men in your home, to the women in your home, to be a different kind of person. So here's a man who drank wine, Belshazzar, back here in the fifth chapter, and he drinks, he drinks it from God's holy vessels. Let's begin now in verse 3. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God, which was in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles and his wives and his concubines drank from them. What a foolish mistake. These vessels that 65 years earlier Nebuchadnezzar had brought from Jerusalem to Babylon. And by the way, he's referred to here as his father throughout the text. But it's actually his grandfather. Understand that in both Hebrew and Aramaic, there is no word for grandfather. It's the same word. And so context determines. And everyone knows, both secular critics as well as evangelical scholars, that Nebuchadnezzar is the grandfather. No one debates that or even makes a point out of it. But it's helpful for you to know that there is no word for grandfather. And if you ever see it in an English translation, it's an interpretation. It's not a translation. In either case, he gives orders here in the banquet hall for those sacred holy vessels to be brought in so they can drink from it. This is a power play. He's using and abusing God's holy objects that were used in the temple. Now, to put it crassly, if uh, you go to uh, work tomorrow and you discover that your computer and your desk and your chair and all the things in your desk are out in the hallway, what do you conclude? What's the inference? The inference is not that your furniture is out, but you are out. And here, in this man demeaning God's holy vessels, he was demeaning the holy God. That's the point of the text. He's not only a drunken slob, he is a profane slob who has no fear of the living God. He knew what had happened to his grandfather, as we will see in what follows, but he ignores it. King Belshazzar was foolish. Even though he knew the one true God had worked in the life of his grandfather, he chose to ignore that and live a life that was pleasing only to himself. To listen again to today's message, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD copy by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program DAN6, entitled The Handwriting on the Wall. Tomorrow, Pastor Carl's wife, Audrey, is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. And when we return Monday, we'll continue our study in the book of Daniel as we search the scriptures. <music>